Today's episode is presented by Public. Public Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that is 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, and 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance. Just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com backslash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour number 94, if I'm not mistaken. So getting up close to 100 here. We've got some things on the docket uh, for today's show. We always... For, for anyone who is new to the show, these are general, broad discussions about anything financial markets. We can talk about our own personal investing, news, whatever we want to discuss. A little bit of housekeeping items before we get started, though. If you like our work and you want a free newsletter in your inbox, feel free to check us out. Chit Chat Money Substack, totally free. And it provides a supplement to any of our other show research as well. And then like and review or share with a friend. It always helps. So tell a friend, be like, you know, those guys at Chit Chat Money, they're doing a great job uh, and we would greatly appreciate it. But before we get into things, I do want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, public.com. Public just launched its new high yield cash account, offering an industry leading 5.1% APY no fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that's 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance. That's just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com slash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is sub- subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast descriptions. High yielded cash accounts are available for US members only. With that said, let's kick things off. Brett, any news topics for this week? Mm, we're starting earnings season. So I thought Delta Airlines would be a fun one to discuss. I believe they're the largest, if not, they're pretty close to the largest airline in the United States, perhaps one and definitely one of the largest in the world as well. Got some funny topics. I have an interesting, perhaps the most painful investing question you could put on someone uh, as a little tease. And I know you got 
news around Musk's new pay package or potential one. And then other airline related stuff, the breaking of the Spirit and JetBlue deal, according to a court ruling, which I saw some headlines on. But my favorite part is that our friend Davy Day Trader Global is back. I don't know if you saw that right before we recorded. And he is going along Spirit Airlines. And funny enough, uh, this is a really rich guy, so I don't think he's going to be too upset. But immediately after he put out his video that uh, Spirit, he was going long Spirit Air, there was a Wall Street Journal report that they are in talks about restructuring and concerns over uh, paying off the debt and managing that after the deal didn't close. So the stock went down approximately 10%. Yeah, brutal. Murder like stuff. It. It's tough. It's tough to invest in shit coasts. There Sorry. were a lot of a lot of really smart people. People that I respect, investors that I respect, investors that I follow and generate a lot of ideas from were long spirit. And this broke the wrong way. Just goes to show, I think, how unpredictable some of these things are and how courts can really rule any way. Hey, you and, know, if, you, if you're a merger arm and you win eight out of 10, then you're probably still doing pretty well. Maybe even less, depending on what ones you get into. Hey, sometimes you lose. Got yeah. some questions, though. Sorry, you're going to get into it. We have one. Any thoughts on Spirit and Jet Blue? This is from Tyler, who is always basically the sole source of our questions. We really appreciate it, Tyler. Uh, says, any thoughts on Spirits and JetBlue? Ryan will have those later. Thoughts on shorting Hawaiian, giving the JetBlue break, and then some other ones. Uh, thoughts on buying spirit debt, given that airplanes are worth more in the market than they are on their balance sheets and more of a macro one we might hit later. So do you want to hit, seems like people are interested in this deal break. Why, why don't you go through your notes on that first and then we'll have a discussion. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not an expert on the case, but and usually not an expert on anything merch art related. However, basically... There was something called a hot doc in this case, where essentially spirits executives, or maybe it was Jet Blues, one of the executives basically talked about raising prices after um, after the merger closed, and that ended up, I think, probably being a concern. And ultimately, the judge ruled that they thought this was anti-competitive and that it would eliminate one of the only low-cost operators for customers i don't know if i agree there's been so much airline consolidation over the last 30 years that it seems weird to step in now to the one low-cost operator who obviously can't operate after this they can't operate low costs anymore so uh it feels like it is kind of ironic that i think spirit will have to increase prices probably, in order to try to stay afloat here. And that was the concern about the merger going through is that prices could increase. So it there was it was kind of interesting to see everyone's reactions. A lot of the people, I think the typical response was that the judge got this wrong, which if you're an investor, it doesn't matter. Like you you knew the risks that that was there. That's why the spread was so large. And so it's 
I think it's on you. And it, I don't think it's a very good look to just blame the judge because you didn't have to buy the stock. Um, but I, with that said, I don't know if this is the right choice. It seems like I'm, I'm a little bit opposed to any deal being considered anti-competitive if the company can't operate on its own after the fact. Yeah, I saw you had a tweet about that with iRobot as well, where, yes, there can be some synergy considerations or local monopolies or whatever. With iRobot, I don't get it when people are concerned about Amazon mapping your home. I, what what are they going to do with that information? iRobot's someone... already doing that on its own. Like, okay, they're doing Someone that. mentioned so that it, to me. Yeah. And I was like, okay, let's say they map their home. What are they going to do next? What are they well, going to do with I, that? Offer you a low-cost, advertise you a low-cost rug that's the exact parameters you're looking for and ship it to you for free? Yeah, also, iRobot's already doing that. So if there's concerns about that, okay. Like that company is already doing it and they're going to be doing it on their own. And yeah, I get I get what you mean where JetBlue may end up being a beneficiary here because one, they don't have to swallow this company anymore and it's a different operating environment. And two, if, if Spirit goes out of business, yes, they're going to have to compete with some of these bidders, but with the airline manufacturers, remember we talked last week, Boeing, or excuse me, airplane manufacturers, uh, behind and having huge backlogs, specifically Boeing is struggling so much. They these companies like Spirit, if they go bankrupt or decide to file for bankruptcy, well, hey, there's going to be you know a potential to buy these air airplanes for you know kind of in an auction deal, but they'll probably be competing with other other companies in that one as well. Yeah, we saw the question there. Look, I don't know much about this deal. Um, but I would go read Andrew Walker's right up on yeah. it. Yeah. He, he's covered it well. And it's Well, here's 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 uh, the question I was gonna ask is thoughts on buying. I don't know anything about Spirit's debt, but it makes sense that maybe it, buying the debt could be interesting if there's gonna be a lot of strategic value out there for these other airlines. Yeah, potentially that would be something I've never done before. So it, I'd have to look into it more, obviously. But the, it does make sense. I mean, airline airplanes are tough to come by right now, uh, given the supply constraints with Boeing. So it seems like those would be worth a lot to a lot of other airlines. Maybe there's some salvage value there, um, but. It's it's a very different type of investment than what I typically go for, so I, I I'd be concerned. I the other thing I find interesting, Hawaiian Airlines didn't trade down that much on this, and it really seems like it should have, assuming that this is the new precedent for airline consolidation. There's obviously some nuances, some differences, less flight overlap. But at the same time, they talk about less overlapping routes. That's what Alaska mentions. But there's less routes to begin with. So 
assuming that uh, I guess the only other difference is that Hawaiian's not really a low cost operator. Yeah, that could be the difference where I don't know. But you can't expect the judge to act rationally because the concern is, okay, well, Spirit, yes, is the low-cost operator, and they're getting absorbed by a company that's a different one and could reduce that. But they're now not able to be the low-cost operator because they're going to go bankrupt. So I think the way to preserve that would have been to let them get bought out by someone, and then I don't know how you you maybe can't restrict that, but I don't think there should be, unless it's someone that absolutely dominates an airport or route paths or whatever, and maybe you can even do some concessions. I do not think the airline industry is, I mean, what these things are hyper-competitive. These things are, as we'll maybe talk about, commodities for the core part you're buying, but I have on these add-ons, you know, like the credit cards and stuff like that. I don't uh every time I, I book a flight answers, yeah every time I, every single time I book a flight I just look up the lowest cost flight on Google Yeah well it's cuz you're not uh No I am the, you're on the travel credit card team so I'm on the Alaska card team Well I you got to just look up do the, a, well, If there's one flight that's like the good thing is that Alaska in most cases is the cheapest provider from where we're going from from yeah. Seattle it's often the cheapest provider but Price compare, anyways. Yeah, but you got to think of these point. Right, well, we don't need to go ten minutes on util- maximizing your your points generation. But if you book on Alaska, you get three times points. So whatever. Um, yeah. So then I don't know. I don't have any let's thoughts here. Okay. I, I don't like. These... I mean, I don't like Hawaiian either. Uh, maybe maybe it's a good short. Alaska is a well-run airline, uh, even with this thing that happened with the the door blowout. I mean, it's one of the only ones that's actually grown significantly and generated good returns on invested capital over the last 25 years, but it's an airline. So I I don't know, (laughs) but you're contradicting yourself here because on the one hand, it's, these are super competitive. It's an airline industry that's hyper competitive and someone could come in and do the same thing. But now you've got lock in with all these credit points. And it's like yeah. these customers are locked in. Let's say they're locked in. I mean, it's is a it good business. Still as yeah. competitive. I don't think it's as competitive as it used uh, to be. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But so maybe it is the right time for someone to step in now. It doesn't need to. Be, I'd be more concerned if it was one of the big four that was buying this. But it does feel weird to block the fifth and sixth or seventh and eighth largest players from combining. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I mean, from an investing perspective, I don't like the Hawaiian, any, anything to do with the Hawaiian deal. I think one of the reasons I like merger are, or excuse me, one of the criteria I need for merger are is, uh, that I would want to own the business at somewhat close to the price I'm paying. And I think it, I'm not losing money or I think it's kind of a fair value. For example, Activision Blizzard, it's had lost its way. The culture was tough for the last five, seven years, but it, it seemed fairly cheap if that deal didn't go through. And I think with these airline companies, with iRobot, yes, the spread is so wide, but man, you might... The downside, as we saw with Spirit, is 
incredible. And if the Hawaiian one doesn't go through, what's interesting is it's it's the same thing where, okay, well, they might have to do a restructuring and, okay, who's going to have the, these assets? Um, I, I, like the downside there is incredible. I mean, the stock, what was it, a 200% premium to where they were trading? Hmm, I think one? it was almost Hawaiian. Hawaiian. Oh, the buyout. Yeah. More. More. 270 or something. They were trading at like $5, and I think the buyout was for like 16 So like 270 maybe. Yeah. And it is... Yeah. Murderer, I thought I, I thought I liked it because all the cases were going as I expected. But the one time you lose money, I'm like, maybe I don't like Murderer so much. And I, I wasn't in on this, but I was definitely thinking about taking a flyer on Spirit and... It's all the investors I listened to. It seemed reasonable that the deal would go through. So, yeah, I think if I am doing merger arb, I would rather own something where bankruptcy risk isn't that high if the deal doesn't go through. And obviously, the spread's not going to be quite as wide. But to me, it's a little more sense of security there. We do have some other questions, though. I don't want to talk merger arb all day. I want to take this one. From Tyler, he says, "Do you guys think you found another Sprouts in your portfolio? That one has had every part of your thesis play out perfectly." Thank you. Yes, pat on the back for us. Uh, no, we. I think it's a good question. I was looking at, I was revisiting Sprouts today, and I want to talk about the Sprouts investment because we might have some listeners who don't know what Sprouts Farmers Market is, don't know what our thesis was, don't know when we bought it, that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to rehash it. In 2020, I believe. You first wrote it up. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I wrote up, found it during the spring 2020. Yeah. Right. And at the time, they had been going through some, I would call it a rough patch prior. They had a management team that grew quickly, kind of grew so fast that they turned it into a bit of a Shitco, more or less. It was not earning a whole lot of money. It was highly levered. A lot of the quality at some of the stores was poor uh, in terms yeah, of like, well, the produce quality. Uh, I think two. I think two things are wrong there. One, they weren't highly levered. They're like one times or one whatever one times EBITDA. Uh, second, it wasn't the quality; it was the promotions. So they had good produce as they. They're trying to improve it even further, but the problem was they were doing insane coupons and discounts that were driving down margins. They were they went from 150 million dollars in debt to 550 million dollars in debt, and earnings didn't change. I think that would qualify as. Wow. I mean, and up. they're earning, but their EBITDA is like 400 something million. So I mean, it's not a concern. Yeah, maybe bankruptcy wasn't a concern, but the quality of the business certainly changed. You could say from the time honestly, when it was, it was I think private it was, equity. Honestly, I think it was smart. I mean, super low cost debt, and I, I was really uh, this was unhappy prior that they to twenty nineteen. Yeah, I was unhappy when they paid it down. Uh, honestly, they should have used. There was no need. It's super low cost, and they were could their cost of debt. If I don't remember, it was sub five percent fixed, and their free cash flow yield is over ten percent. So just buy back. And you're generating enough money to pay up down the principal every year. Yeah, but they were gener. Maybe I think it was smart. I, I think Sinclair probably 
realized that there were a lot of underperforming stores and that maybe the EBITDA wasn't, he knew that they were going to take away the coupon clippers and struggle with the EBITDA at some of the stores. I think paying down the debt was probably the right move in a super competitive industry where yeah, it's not they didn't, certainty. This isn't software. Hindsight like, though, hindsight, they didn't need EBITDA, It's not EBITDA. EBITDA is not earnings. Yeah, but they, I mean, they're paying down the, like, we can look at our friends over at FinChat if I can bring it up. I know this, but I've followed them since 2019 briefly. Trust me, they did not need to pay down this debt. Share count could be lower, stock price. Like, they could have created shareholder value. Hindsight's 20, hindsight's obviously perfect, but I like they didn't need to pay down the debt. They would have had no liquidity concerns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, go through the thesis. What was your thesis? Well, one, the stock was insanely cheap. So the free cash flow was above 10%. And probably at in spring 2020, everything was really cheap, but it's probably 13, 14% free cash flow yield. And the new management team had come in and they had decided in 2019 when they arrived that they wanted to get rid of this coupon clipping strategy. And that strategy had led to deteriorating operating margins for multiple years, even though revenue and comp sales were going up. So they got rid of that. But during uh, spring of 2020, grocery stores did extremely well just because everyone was going for that type of stuff, less restaurants, more to that. Comp sales were doing fantastic. But once we uh, lapped that, they had lapped the pandemic catalyst, the one-time bump, and they got rid of these coupon clippers, which really, really hurt comp sales. So comp sales looked ugly for a few years. And when you have negative comp sales with retail, I mean, we were even debating it internally. If you remember, Ryan, we were like, man, like these comp sales keep going negative. It's not good. But margins were getting better. Earnings were actually growing. And what they were saying- Gross was margins. I mean- Gross margins. Operating uh, margins declined. Lapping 2020. Sure, from 2020, but I'm saying from 2019. Um, like they basically went down slightly from 2020. I mean, for all intents, I mean, it's, it's like barely below 2020, but from compared to 2019 and 2018, significantly higher. And people thought that wasn't sustainable. I've seen the bear cases on that, but we were talking internally. The comp sales were ugly, but we trusted management on the strategy of they got rid of the coupon clippers. Those were low margin customers. And then once we lapped that, we were growing comp sales again. And I think part of the thesis was, well, it's so undervalued and they have decent returns on invested capital. It was probably like 12, 15%. And there was just a ginormous runway to uh, to grow store count across the United States. We thought, you know, they had about 300 stores at the time and we think they can get to 1,000. That pretty much sums it up. And the management team, Sinclair, who came over from Walmart, is really sharp. So we liked him. I think that's about it, right? And honest. Seemed honest, yeah. candid. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just maybe it's just he's Scottish, but 
he seemed very candid. And when problems were facing the business, he was pretty straightforward about it. It was a very clean thesis that I haven't really come across since. Well, I remember at the time, Ryan, it was, or, go, sorry, go, go, sorry. Yeah, it was the, it's a store. It's, it's a unique concept. Health enthusiasts is who they were targeting. It took a while for them to really kind of get that messaging across, I think, because they had to go through getting rid of the coupon clippers, but 70% of the items sold in store are attribute-based items, kind of diet-specific, vegan, paleo, that kind of thing. So the in my opinion, if, if margins are sustainable, if that's who you continue to target and you continue to attract them, they had a clean balance sheet. They were buying back. It was cheap. And they weren't able to grow store count that quickly because of all the supply chain issues around the time. But now they're in a position where they can certainly grow. They added distribution centers. So it seemed like the supply chain was improving for Sprouts. They made it one of their big targets to keep every store within a 250 mile radius. Prior, they had grown store count a little quickly and some of them were kind of out of reach of distribution centers um, or not within that 250 mile distance. So it seemed very clean. Maybe wasn't the best like performing business on the comp sales line, but profitable, better than a lot of its peers on the margin side. And it was buying back a ton of stock and it was cheap. But here, do you, everything seems perfect now, right? Because stocks more than doubled. But Ryan, do you remember how concerned you were with these quarterly reports in 2021? Yes, you were. Do you remember this? Well, I think everyone was. That's why the stock sold off. The but what like how do you how do you like? I think listeners would be helpful in understanding of having those concerns, but then weighing it versus like, okay, well, when does it turn into a sell decision? Well, it was a little easier for us because the multiple doubled. Essentially, it went from twenty dollars to thirty dollars. We made a ten percent position in the portfolio, and it went from twenty dollars to thirty dollars without earnings significantly improving because the comp sales were coming down. It was lapping COVID, so for us, it was kind of easier. We sold it around thirty-two, I think, came back down to twenty, and we ended up buying again. So at the time. I mean, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to read between the lines, especially with a grocer that has negative comp sales. The good thing was we were seeing similar trends out of some other grocers. So I got the sense that, okay, they're not alone. And margins weren't deteriorating that much. And every time I listened to the conference call, I got a little bit of a sense of surety that, okay, it's not the end of the world. Because earnings were stable, earning and earnings per share were going up. Yeah, we we did sell it though. At th- yeah, I know. around thirty dollars, and ended up buying it back. Uh yes, we did do that, and then we sold. Yep, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, which buying back around? Well, of, no, we ended up selling around thirty, low thirties. Bought it back, I think around thirty. Uh, in twenty twenty three or late twenty twenty two, can't remember. But there's a, it was a very volatile stock, which was also not fun. Uh, but I guess it's 
maybe it can be fun if you if you time it correctly, but it's not you know fun if you're just if you're just holding that one. And it was a frustrating one to hold for many years because you go down a lot in earnings reports because everyone hated the comp sales, but earnings look fine. They're buying back stock. There's no risk of bankruptcy, and you had to have some extreme patience. And now I really don't know why it's going up so much, but yeah, that's I, the other thing I, I was going to say is I'm starting to realize how hard it is to, I think, hold your winners, where this was a winner, but a lot of it came from multiple expansion, which maybe, so that's all, that's all maybe it winners. deserves. NVR from 1997 to 2003 was a six-bagger and the multiple didn't change. That's an exception. I know we had that on the show that we just covered. That's an exception to the rule. Most hunter-baggers... Remember the There's Chris multiple Meyer expansion, book. yeah. Multiple expansion is huge. Yeah. The and maybe it deserves uh more expensive multiple, but it makes it harder to own because you don't feel the margin of safety as much. They're not able to buy back as much stock. But I think the lesson for me is that if you find a unique business where it seems like it has a replicable model, don't haggle over pennies and just hold it and don't. Don't try to get in and out because it's way too hard to time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I say I mean, just keep owning it. It's a little easier to do in personal accounts, but when things are going right for you, don't, I'd say don't mess with it. Unless this, the valuation becomes extreme, which would be typically, unless it's just an absolute absurd getting better, like the business is growing like gangbusters, it probably means it's like it triples or quadruples within. A short time span, at least from my perspective, because if you bought it, it probably wasn't. I mean, if you're underwriting 100% IRR, find me those stocks. But I think the key is if the business is good and the quality is improving, you will almost always be benefited by listening to David Gardner in this case. Now, I know there's people out there that aren't the biggest fans of The Motley Fool, but David Gardner, I think, undisputably, is one of the best investors of this generation. And the key reason is because he never uh, trims the flowers. And I think, again, when and you think about flowers, to his winners. Yeah, that's even harder. I think that's the next step. Maybe that's the next step we got to take is to be able to do that. But the reason you sell is when the I think, yes, if the valuation gets absolutely extreme, like some things got in 2021, sure. But only sell if you're very concerned about the, the business quality or changing the business. Ugh. Cares if you wouldn't buy Sprouts at 50. If you're holding from 20, you're going to be happy over the long term. I think. Yeah, you're frozen right. for Looks me. like Ryan froze. Uh, hopefully, uh-oh, uh-oh, there you go. might be on your end. Yep, I saw it, I saw it. Yeah, you froze on my end. Okay, looks like we're back. All right, next topic. Let's see if we got any other questions. Have you guys seen the pitches around multifamily housing REITs at unusually high cap rates? Any thoughts on those? Nope, do not. Like any, I, I don't care. Uh, sorry, don't pay attention to those at all. Ryan, I'm assuming you haven't either. No, I have not. No, the thing about real no, estate is I get so bored that I can't do it. These type of things, I just fall asleep. It's like healthcare companies. 
I've grown more like, I think something that I, I have a problem with is I see so many people make money in real estate that it feels like unoriginal or that it's too easy that everyone's doing it, that it doesn't make sense. And it's, there are probably a lot of ways to make money in real estate. The only thing I don't really like is unless you're like just buying like literal REITs, uh, like securities, it's, it's pretty hands-on if it's an investment oh, okay. property, like you can hire someone to manage it or whatever. But when you're getting started, I think for the most part, you're going to have to work on that property a lot. So it's just not my cup of tea, not my style of investment that I prefer. But uh, but Discover Financial is, we got a question here. Did you read Discover's earnings? I have not. It's on the top of my list to read next. Um, but why don't we go to another topic? Because we're about halfway through here, Ryan. Yeah, let me go through. I like yours. Yeah, go go to yours. So, well, we can talk about the Elon pay package in a little bit. But I, will, I was reading a shareholder, or not a shareholder, a hedge fund letter this week from Bonsai Partners. Uh, it's run by Andrew Rosenblum. He is on Twitter. So uh, great follow. Highly recommend it. Uh he mentions in the letter that he really likes the IT services industry and he lays out a pretty good case for it. So here's a quote from the letter. He says, the image below presents a selection of leading IT engineering companies and their aggregate performance from 2010 to 2022. Note that these businesses profitably grew revenues 20X to 40X over the past 12 years. I know a lot of people just listen to the show, so I'm describing an image that you can't see, but basically it goes through four businesses. Lobent, EPAM, Endava, and Nagaro. And like he said, all of them either grew revenues somewhere between 20X and 40X over 12 years. And they all trade somewhat expensive. So EPAM, last 12-month price-to-earnings ratio is 28.4. Endava is 27.9. Nagaro, which has a little more hair on it, is 14.3 times, but it's also grown 36.5% over the last 12 years. And then Globant is way more expensive at 57.4 times. But all these businesses have grown rapidly. And for us, who are kind of consulting haters and maybe less so in the IT space, I've always wondered, and I've never really worked with, never really had like an IT services provider come and help me in a business. So I've never had that experience. So he actually asked the question. He says, why outsource to an IT services company in the first place? Which I think is a question we've asked here multiple times. And he lays out some good reasoning around why these businesses are so important. He says, as you likely know, there's a persistent shortage of software engineering, engineering talent in North America and Western Europe, leading to the high cost of these employees. For people that don't think this is true, go to a big bank's careers site, uh, careers website, and look how many, just look up the term developer or engineer, look how many job openings there are. It is really hard for a lot of these Fortune 500 businesses like a Hershey or kind of a generic company that doesn't specialize in technology to attract these uh, developers. 
He says, most software engineers prefer to work directly inside technology companies instead of more traditional Fortune 500 type businesses. Since the need for engineering ebbs and flows around technology projects, staffing needs are volatile, which means an employee hired for a specific project might be repurposed on a new task or be let go after the project is finished. It's far more interesting, prestigious, and job secure for an engineer to gain exposure to multiple companies by working at an IT services firm. It makes a lot of sense. Like, If you are a developer going to a company that doesn't specialize in anything tech-related where it's where developers aren't kind of a core core employee component of the business it's you're probably hired for certain projects where all of a sudden you're questioning whether you're valued at the company after the project is done it's so much easier to just work at an IT services or an IT um kind of consulting business and have that consistent job security and be moved from project to project. So makes a lot of sense. And I know specifically for EPAM and Nagaro, they have cost advantages because they hire talent from Eastern Europe and India. So curious your thoughts here. Are these companies that would uh, interest you? I think potentially I get, and people might be like, well, who cares if it's boring as long as it makes money? I honestly think it's, not being bored with an investment is important because then you actually pay attention to what matters. I, I find these businesses boring, but clearly they're good ones. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly durable. It's much more, I'd say durable and useful than executive suite consulting, business consulting, you know, the McKinsey style stuff, compensation consultants get on my high horse there. Uh, it's much, much different because this is, they might describe them as consultants, but really this is contract work. And as someone who worked briefly in the mechanical engineering space, I mean, it's very, very common to the mechanic, the giant mechanical contracting firms, which are generally private. Um, they do stuff that's similar where you have a smaller company, they go to you for a project, they contract you on that and they, they do it. You do it for them. I, I think these do make sense uh, for sure. Yeah. It's, and I've always, I remember looking at EPAM a year ago because a big chunk of their employee base is in Ukraine or was in Ukraine. And so the stock like just dropped some absurd amount after the the news was announced between Russia and Ukraine. Sorry, I'm stuttering. But the I looked at it and I thought, what the hell is so special about this business? Like, why has it performed so well? And it seems like, well, first of all, this describes it well. There's constant need for these types of services and a growing need, especially since they specialize in a certain vertical, which is pretty much engineering type projects. The if you're software an Accenture right? software so, engineering type yeah, projects, yeah. you're if you're an Accenture or one of these big consulting firms, there's so many verticals that I don't think the revenue upside is quite as clear as just being like a tech specific consulting firm. So I like it. Uh, I think EPAM is pretty interesting. They have a good CEO. I, I remember looking at um, difficulties with their staff right now, given that they've, they've had to relocate a lot of them. But I, I thought it was a really good shareholder letter. If you want to check it out, just look at Bonsai Partners. They, they write a good letter or follow Andrew Rosenblum on yeah. Twitter. You have the link or you want to talk? No, nah, I didn't include maybe? it here. Okay, but yeah, so. I can I can throw it in the chat. All right. I wanted this, to start doing these 
discussion questions because someone DM'd me before the show and he said, you should, you know, have you listened to the Barstool podcast? And I was like, yes. And we've tried to incorporate this stuff before, but I want to start doing this more. Zeros and heroes from the week. And I know you didn't see this before, I don't think. Or, or you did. No. No, you didn't. Anyway. Yeah. Zeros and heroes from the week. Who had who in financial markets had a great week and who had a rough week? I think that'd be a fun oh. way to start these shows from now on. All right. Do you have any in mind who are the heroes and zeros from the week? Well, I have your, I mean, we talked uh, spirit. I think that's clearly the, the one there. There's a lot of people owning that one. Read a couple zeros. Spirit shareholders are the zeros zeros for the week. Yeah. Uh, Heroes. I guess people that are going to accumulate some fees on these Bitcoin ETFs. I'm stealing your notes here, but yeah. That one makes Elon. Sense. Elon. Yeah. Well, he's going to, he needs to get more, a hundred billion more dollars of Tesla shares. If he's going to be properly incentivized. Isn't to it? Own this thing. Yeah. I mean, he's a gaslighter. It's okay. The Matt Levine wrote about it, which I'm happy he did. And he's like, this He's more or less called it extortion because it's like he's saying, well, that money you used to give me is gone now. I own Twitter with that money. So for me to be properly incentivized, I'm going to – for me to spend time on this project, you have to make it worth my while, which is a good threat. That is a good threat if you're a Tesla board because you're going to lose your stock premium if he's not – as involved if he stops showing up on the conference calls and if he doesn't talk about it as much yeah all right i got another uh zero and the stock is off 78 percent from all-time highs i hope you haven't seen this meme you may have because it kind of went viral and i did retweet it but i know you're not on twitter all the time so then we don't see everything but i'm going to share this one i didn't include it because well I just wanted to see your reaction live, so I'm going to share my screen here. I think some of the people watching on the video will be able to see it too. Did you see this one? Uh, no, I've seen some I've seen the mean format like that, but not that one specifically. <laughs> Describe it for big... people that are listening. <laughs> yeah, so it's the the one. I think it makes sense where it's it's a pregnant uh, woman drinking and smoking and it's like no it doesn't affect my baby and then there's 12 years later and this kid is looking at a computer screen and he says alibaba is a 23 percent free cash flow yield at some point it has to be a buy i don't know why but this one it made me laugh so hard i mean i was laughing for a solid minute um this is a good one uh whoever did it w2i realist so thank you for that one but i think that's a zero for the week because I mean, stock's down 80%. It keeps falling. And look, you could have argued it's cheap at 10% free cash flow yield. You could have argued it was a cheap at a 15% free cash flow yield. And now, hey, at some point it has to be a buy. And that leads to, mm, relates to my other topic, which is a poll I did that would probably, I, I honestly don't know how I'd answer this one because it seems so hard. If you have $50,000 and you're forced to put it into one of two places, so Again, no other options. 
you can either put it into Alibaba or Bitcoin. Where, where are you putting it? Oh, gosh. Uh... <laughs> Maybe Bitcoin. <laughs> some Maybe guy, Bitcoin. I, I did the C results. I did C results for the third one. Some people can, you know, to see if they don't want to answer. And some guy said, I'm putting mine in C results. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, Honestly, yeah, I think yeah. I would choose Bitcoin. I think I might choose Bitcoin. 44% of people chose. We almost had a thousand people answer this. 44% chose Bitcoin, 38% chose Alibaba. So, which do you think has the on. most margin of safety? <laughs> oh, God. Baba, probably. Uh, I don't think? know. I don't know. Because no, I, probably I Bitcoin. Bitcoin is so. It's so universally like talked about. It seems like you're gonna have buyers for a long time, no matter what. I, I could be wrong, but it, I would have thought people would get bored of it after two years of not really doing much. But people still swear by it. People love it. I don't think the utility has changed a whole lot. But I could see this being in like the same place in twenty years, and people are talking about like. The next leg up, whereas Alibaba, it does seem like it could get nationalized or something tomorrow. Yeah, the, the CCP could say bye bye, your your money's gone. See ya. Yeah. And they can do that in any country, but I think the stock price is telling you that the risk in China, if you're reading the news, is ex uh. Much, much higher. Got a comment here. I know what Franklin Templeton is clicking on on that poll. Um, okay. Well, before we get to another serious topic, um, I want one more funny joke. This is kind of an inside one. Where did you see that uh, the Secretary of State for the United States uh, got stranded in Davos? We didn't get our invites. Sorry. I was kind of shocked. Uh, for the World Economic Forum this week, which is a wild event. Yeah, I recommend watching the strange stuff that goes on there. But apparently it was stranded after his Boeing plane broke down in Switzerland. And good anonymous account, I think it's anonymous, Doug Ott said, this would not have happened to Jeff Immelt. Do you get that? Do you get that reference? Who is who is Immelt again? Those the the, the general the general electric CEO that had the 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 second private jet tailing him just in case the one that he was using broke oh down. <laughs> uh, that was another funny one. People were people were funny online this week. I started reading but, a book this week called it's the one from Jeff Graham called Dear Chairman, where it kind of talks about the evolution of like shareholder activism and how it's become more commonplace. And it's a really good book. Interesting. What's it and called again? Dear Chairman. Okay. By Jeff Graham. It's Graham, G-R-A-M-M. -M. I think Warren Buffett's talked about it a couple of times or, or he's recommended it before. And some of the executive egregiousness or expenses are so crazy going through that. They I love it. I love it. I love hate it. I I hate love it. I, I don't know how to say it. I should have I should have brought up this one for today's show and found the excerpt, but this one's not that crazy in terms of like executive egregiousness. But in 1928, I believe it might have been 1929, uh, Ben Graham. First of all, it's such a different period in time 
in terms of financial reporting because companies did not financially report. So Ben Graham, who I've always kind of thought of as just like a great investment teacher, but he was really like a lot more. He was literally like a pioneer in terms of value investing, like literally looking at, it was unthought of to go look at a company's financials. Yeah. If you read the, who is it? The Jesse Livermore stuff. It's people just reading the tape and trying to be some mystic watching these stock prices. No one did any of this fundamental analysis. It was a lot more about who else is buying. Like, is there somebody that's going to be buying up shares? You should get in front of it. A lot of rumors going on. And Ben Graham was one of the first ones to be like, no, the stocks, stocks are worth something actually. And so he went, he found that there was, I can't remember what it was called, but there was some organization, some national organization that the all companies had to report to. They had to give their financial reports there and they had to like physically deliver them. And the only way to go see those financial reports was to drive down or, or train down to Washington, DC and get your hands on the copy. So he did that and he found, what is it? I can't remember the railway. It was some railway and it was a part of, I'm going to blank on this, but it was some railway and they had, the stock price was $64 a share. They were doing about $6 in earnings, which that was what they would show investors is they're like, we did $6 in earnings this year. So whatever, a little over 10 times earnings. They had $90 in cash in net wow. cash, just sitting Dang. on it. And like, in, they would cash. call them investments. There, there were some investments, mostly US okay. treasuries. Yeah. And he's like, he, so he started an activist campaign. He's like, first of all, he wrote a letter. I was like, can you guys distribute this? And the shareholder or the executives were like, you have no idea the complications of running a rail, a railroad. We need the money. He's like, it doesn't affect your business. You have ninety dollars in cash a share. These U.S. Treasuries. We're, I'm just ask, asking for some of the excess capital back. You don't need this. You guys are profitable. And he finally got all the other shareholders. He would go one by one and get the shareholders, and he'd be like, "Look, they could special dividend us out more than we paid for the shares tomorrow." And he got them. Got two board seats, and they uh, they gave him a special dividend of like more than the entire share price. So it goes to show that if you were able and willing to go be an activist back in the day, there was plenty of alpha to be had. But with that said, it's a lot harder than just publishing a letter on the internet. You had to literally go place by place and get find the shareholders and convince them, which would have been quite tough. But that's, that was kind of the first one Graham talks about, Jeff Graham talks about as the evolution of an activist investor. All right. Sounds like a book recommendation for everyone. Uh, I'd also recommend the fund that we did talk about in another podcast related to activism and related to Boeing, who we've kind of been on ever since that debacle in the supply chain and these quality control issues. Someone said that they basically need an activist in there and to get rid of the cultural stuff that came on with that. Who is that company that they merged with that kind of 
they moved the company that spurred the move to Chicago and the shareholder stuff. I forget the name of the company, but it was the late nineties merger that kind of ruined everything. Um, or a lot of people Working argue. Yeah. But who they said they need an actress in there. Frederick get, Douglas, something Douglas. Yeah. Douglas Douglas. Yeah. Uh, gosh, why can't I remember? But say that who, someone was saying they need an activist and that they would be a national hero, at least for the United States, obviously. Could anyone reasonably do this? I don't know if there's anyone with the size. McDonald Douglas. McDonald, no. right, right, right. Yeah. No, I don't think so. And I'm not sure you want. Listen, I don't think Dave, it's Dave Calhoun, right? No, is that that's different. That's the basketball coach. I always get no, the Syracuse coach. And uh, that's Jim Bayheim. Uh, <laughs> no, Calhoun. isn't there like a Calhoun? Isn't there a Calhoun? Uh, yeah, but I think it's I think it's Dave Calhoun. I don't think he's the right guy, but I worry about Boeing having some very profit motivated shareholder, like making important decisions for like the safety of, you know, flyers. So it feels like there would be some corner cutting, I imagine. I don't know an activist investor. I don't think that's the best scenario. Bezos, then they merge with Blue Origin. He takes it over. I don't think Bezos has any interest. I know, I know. He doesn't, but I think he could do it. Okay, serious topic, Delta earnings. Did you look at these at all? I know it's it's a pretty important company. They they got, if you're talking about kind of the economy and stuff, but I'll sum it up. Uh, Let's see, just get some numbers here for context for the listeners. 2023 operating income, $5.5 billion, $2 billion in free cash flow. So capital intensive business, and they're investing a lot. Uh, 2024 guide for $3 billion to $4 billion in free cash flow. Uh, full year, rem, rem, can never say this word, remuneration. I, I don't know why I can't say this word. Money they got from American Mune. Express remuneration from American Express in their credit card partnership of $6.8 billion. Uh, that was up 22% year over year. I say that because that's kind of the higher margin loyalty program stuff that maybe is a bit more durable than the cyclical uh, airline prices that you know gets less affected by oil prices and stuff like that. Now, yeah, that number, okay, market cap's 24 billion. Stock went down after this report. They got about $20 billion in debt and they have a decent amount of assets and have an EV of around $37 billion. Or wait, yeah, yeah. If we add it all together, yeah, the math is correct. So, uh EV to free cash flow of between 9 and 12 depending on whether you use the 3 billion dollars in free cash flow or the 4 does the stock interest you at all at these prices? Because I think the only thing that attracts me to a company like this is the durability. I think they're a very durable asset. The brand will be around in 20 years, I think. That's what I'm saying. I think you'd be confident saying that now. Obviously, airlines are kind of notorious for being like commonly bankrupt. They go bankrupt all the time reemerge out of bankruptcy, that kind of thing. But I think it's a very different business today than it was 15 years ago. My diff it's so lumpy. The earnings are so lumpy for these major airlines. It's like 
Michael O'Leary, the CEO of Ryanair, said they are always three or four years away from their next crisis, and there's just no pre- predictability in terms of free cash flow, in my opinion. So maybe that's an opportunity for a lot of people. But we're we're talking about twenty times trailing uh, free from twenty. Fifteen times, legit free cash flow. I'm not sure I'd want to pay that for like an airline. Yeah, how much of it's being returned? Um, dividend yield. I don't think there are any buybacks right now because they're using it to pay down the debt. They have some expensive debt, so that's honestly good. They're going to reduce their interest expense. Dividend yield is only one percent. I mean, the earnings ratio is like five, but I would look at cash flow when when looking at an airline. Do they, yeah. I, I don't think they'll have much oil prices. Yeah, like okay, I was going to mention while I was thinking while you were talking, you mentioned the volatility. They could easily generate zero <laughs> in free cash flow in twenty twenty four, just if a few variables change just a little bit. So yeah, but when we we covered Ryanair when we were doing you know back when we were doing the not so deep dives, which little teaser this week we had another one of the special episodes uh covering an investor but next week and the f- next three weeks we will be covering specific stocks one from me one from ryan and then one in an interview we're recording next week so no you worry we're still doing stock research episodes that'll be like an hour long and comprehensive but after we covered ryan air i like the business a lot at least from compared to other airlines, you seem to like it a lot. Is that still the airline that most attracts you as a potential investment? Yeah, definitely. It seems the most like most well positioned to grow, just given the cost advantage. Some of those uh, quotes that I hear about twenty dollar flights—that's insane. Yeah, but the thing is, anything extra. <laughs> Like, remember, half of the revenue come from the upcharges. So if you want any bag, pay a little bit extra, you know, all that stuff, which it still makes sense. And it makes sense for specific people that are trying to be the cheap traveler. And yeah, and it works because as we talked about on that episode, it's much easier to run Ryanair in Europe than Frontier Spirit in the United States because the geography is just not nearly as dense. I mean, you get the Midwest and the Rocky Mountains and all that good stuff. It's so, a different business. It's yeah, very it's different. Just thesis. It's just it's just the distance. Yeah, yeah. It's a very different thesis than if I were betting on Delta. So I think yeah, it's much easier. That's probably the one I'd be most excited by. I mean, I do I'm, own an airline. That's true. It's we do own just, well. It's trading all, at zero. A whole bunch of different reasons. That one is trading at a zero dollar enterprise value. Related to that airline, though. They said that their labor shortages are dissipating, pilot shortages are going down, and I think that's good for, I don't know, the costs coming in there. Because the, the, the bonuses they've had to pay to these pilots, which is fair to the pilots, but from an investment perspective, it's been quite the headwind. Also interesting, now I don't know how much Delta knows about this and whether how precise this guidance is, but they predict or are guiding American Express revenue which i'm sh- i'm sh- assuming is correlated to spending volume to grow on their delta cards by 10% next year so i think that's a good see through to amex okay one minute 
one minute left, two minutes left, roughly. Yeah. Do we want to, you did the ad at the start. Do we want to maybe not cheat? <laughs> maybe we do sure. an extra. Yeah, yeah. Just so as, as we're doing those. Yeah. Give them a Discussion questions to wrap things up. Have you made any changes to your portfolio this week? If so, what are they? Follow up. Anything on your watch list right now that you could see yourself buying soon? Okay. First, no. Last thing I bought was coupon uh, in, what would it be? It was either the first week of January or the last week of December. But the thing that is interesting to me is Ally Financial. They, the stock's below 32 again. So it's getting a little bit cheaper after they got went through. They, the stock just kind of zoomed higher after the interest rate pause stuff and the sentiment around that since it's kind of a hot potato around the Fed decisions. And they've had, I, I, I'm concerned about the executive suite because of the change in management. That's really my only concern here. I'm not honestly concerned about the balance sheet, but maybe that'll age really poorly. But yeah, I could see myself buying that one once I get some cash coming in here. Uh, and that is, and coupon as well. I'd say, I'd say those are the two at the moment. So I could see myself, I don't own Ally right now, uh, mainly because it had shot up to 35 and I don't know. Uh, but I think right now is a decent price. We're below book value. Should be able to generate pretty solid returns on equity going forward, I think. Yeah, I FOMO bought Ally at 35. Oh, right, right. We've had a tough start to 2024. It's okay. And these are small buys, and it's going to be like, they're things that I imagine I will add to over time. This week, portfolio changes. I did buy a little coupon, it's down a lot. Uh, so added to that position, it was down 8% after a downgrade and then 4% the next day. So well below my original cost basis and I bought a little bit more. On my watch list, I got to say booking holdings. It's up there. It's shot up my watch list quite quickly. Biggest travel company in the world. And I'll be talking about it next week on an episode. So, well, that episode won't come out for a while, but. I think it'll come out in two weeks. Maybe three. TBD. Okay. That's up there for me. All right. I'm excited to listen to your report. Uh, Yeah, that's one I had never really looked at, but it is much cheaper than Airbnb. Uh, Let's see. Okay. I'm going to read off some look at stuff on my watch list. Spotify is above 200 again. That's a tough one. Uh, Boy, that is so disappointing. Okay, <laughs> we got, so here, here. Okay, we got the tobacco companies. British American Tobacco is at twenty nine. Philip Morris International is at ninety two five. Altria is at forty. Uh, I believe British American Tobacco and Altria are both basically at a ten percent dividend yield. And if I look at Philip Morris here, we are at five point six. Do those interest you at these prices? Yeah, Philip Morris does. I like, I don't know. With British American and Altria, we've we've gone over this like a million times, but just some of the positioning in what we call kind of the modern nicotine world, I don't think they're that well positioned. You still might be able to make a good amount of money just purely based on that dividend, but I certainly wouldn't be reinvesting it. I would, if anything, I'm taking that and putting it somewhere else. Philip Morris, 5% on 
almost 6% dividend yield is nothing to shrug at and volumes are growing in that business and they're potentially higher margin than their core cigarette business. And cigarettes themselves are not declining that much because they're in better geographies. So I think there's a lot more to like there. You're just paying a little more. All right. I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Thank you for everyone that joined us live. For anyone listening on the podcast, these go live every Thursday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific, and do the math for the rest of the world. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And if you think that someone else that you know would enjoy listening to this show, click that share button send it over to them. We'd greatly appreciate it. Let's hit the disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan, I, and any podcast guests may hold securities discussed in this podcast. We may have held them in the past, and we may buy, sell, or hold any of these securities in the future. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.